amusing to me. I had to mute myself as you were speaking there because we had someone at the Department of Education just opposite ASI's office screaming out, out, out. So uh, clearly similar sort of sentiments to uh, some of the MPs at that vote of no confidence there. Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI and today I am very pleased to be joined by Kate Andrews, the Economics Editor at The Spectator. Uh, in today's episode we're going to be, it's a rather tax heavy one I must say, we're going to be talking first about Tax Freedom Day, uh, followed by windfall taxes, the uh, cases for and against, and then move on to the future economic direction of the Conservative Party and talk a little bit about the vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister earlier this week. But first off, it's Tax Freedom Day today at the time of recording on June the 8th. Every year, the Adam Smith Institute calculates the number of days the average person would have to work just to pay off their taxes to the taxman. So from this day onward, we're actually earning for ourselves. Uh, we do that by dividing net national income by the expected tax take for the year. Uh, and we've projected it out um, up until 2026. That the picture becomes even worse with Tax Freedom Day set to reach the dizzying heights of June the 24th. Um, and compared to last year, this was a jump of a full week. Usually when we do this, it's, it wiggles around by about a day or two. But I think this is a really strong illustration of just how crushing the UK's tax burden has become. This is the worst it's been since uh, the mid-80s. And in fact, if you go up to 2026, it will end up being the worst since records began, which is fantastic news and a very optimistic way to start this podcast. Kate, you wrote a piece for The Spectator today, kind of looking into a bit more detail about what the options are for the Chancellor and the government to tackle this uh, raising this rising tax burden. Do you see there being much scope for, for actually having a government that does cut taxes in a meaningful way? Because they seem to talk the talk, but not so much walk the walk in recent times. Yeah, you put it well, Dan. I mean, this is a prime minister who has been boasting about being a low tax government and, uh, you know, being under the umbrella of a low tax party for the several years that he has been in number 10. And yet we've seen the opposite. Now, I, I don't want to overlook some key factors. Uh, Rishi Sunak did change the taper to universal credit, which means that it pays more to work more, more people have been lifted out of national insurance. Um, so, you know, there have been some meaningful tax cuts for people uh, towards the lower end of the pay threshold. And I, you know, I think that's quite right. If you're going to um, have a, you know, a tax giveaway, it should be for the people who, who, who need it the most. Um, but that being said, uh, the reason that has been so overshadowed is because the tax hikes are so numerous um, on people and on corporations. Of course, at the Adam Smith Institute, you know, you know that corporations are, are ultimately businesses. So it's all a tax on people um, and it's painful. Uh, and I have to say congratulations. I mean, it's not happy congratulations to the coverage that you have for Tax Freedom Day today, but it's such an important year to be highlighting how badly wrong this has gone for the Conservative Party. And as I say in that piece that you mentioned, the, the problem for Boris Johnson is that for quite some time now, he's gotten away with claiming to be a low tax party while doing the opposite. Uh, tax burden is now over a 70 year high in about five years time. It's on track to be at a 77 year high. That's a Tory party 
with a huge majority compared to, to you know, recent governments. So he's not going to get away with that as much, I don't think, anymore, especially since this confidence vote. He's not going to be able to, to claim that he's low tax while not actually cutting taxes. Uh, and this is where the difficulty lies, because he loves spending. He loves a big infrastructure project. He loves giveaways. He loves um, what my editor has described as cakeism. You know, Boris Johnson wants to have his cake and eat it. He wants to cut taxes, but also have really high spending. Uh, and given the economic situation we're in, that's going to be very difficult. Or what he could do is say, actually, uh, I want to keep spending, but I'm going to go for growth. I'm going to do huge supply side reform, going to liberalize the planning system, do all the things we've been talking about doing for decades. So I'm going to be able to cut taxes because we're going to have so much more economic growth. Again, very little evidence or sign that this is a prime minister willing to really come close to touching those big topics. I mean, one by-election made them scrap all of their planning reform. So, um, you know, I... I'm interested to see if he's going to compromise on supply side reform or if he's going to compromise on spending or if he's actually going to compromise on neither um, and and try, as you say, to talk the talk. But if his MPs are going to hold him to account a little bit more on that. Yeah, there's certainly an aspect of, Lord, make me a low tax government, but not yet, right? <laughs> it's the, the phrase that springs to mind along with the, the excellent have your cake and, and eat itism, cakeism. Uh, I think there's, in a lot of people's minds, there's a kind of choice to be had between if you are going to have tax cuts, are you going to have them on uh, the personal side or the business side? Now, as you mentioned, of course, at the end of every tax on corporations and businesses, there is a wallet. It's not like um, it's that different. But the distinction seems to be that, well, personal tax cuts, say the bringing forward the 1P fall in the basic rate of income tax by year, for example, that's just targeted at tackling the cost of living crisis. And then on the business side, you've got supply side reform, pro-growth tax cuts, uh, looking at, say, full expensing or abolishing the the so-called factory tax, as we call it. Uh, And it seems like the Chancellor is having a look at that. But I think it's it's important from our perspective, at least, to emphasize that, say, 1p cut in the basic rate of income tax or indexing tax thresholds to inflation instead of freezing them as we have done. Those are pro-growth tax reforms as well, mm-hmm. um, ultimately. They help put money in people's pockets straight away. Uh, and some of our, um, our more centri- centrist-leaning colleagues might say, well, it's not perfect on the distributional side of things, so we shouldn't do it. But the effects of those uh, can last for years, quite beyond the kind of political benefits of saying, look, I've put people uh, money in people's pockets right now. So do you see an, any particular kind of taxes as, as the key priorities if we're going to, as you say, uh, target these effectively and make sure that they are helping people on low incomes, but also boosting growth in the long run? Well, it seems that the tax that the government might be most interested in is reducing income tax. Um, you know, that been um, peddled for some time now. Uh, Rishi Sunak in his last budget basically said to MPs, um, not in these exact words, but the implication was if you stop pushing me to spend so much money, I can probably cut income tax, uh, take a penny off income tax. So that seems to be what the government's focused on. And for all the points you just made, Dan, um, you know, it, it could have a lot of, of beneficial impact overnight. Um, but there's now also talk of, of going back and, and reassessing their hike to corporation tax. And um, I, whilst I am sympathetic to cutting personal taxes and putting a priority on that because of the cost of living crisis. It is just not reasonable to think that business is going to invest in the way that particularly the chancellor wants them to. I mean, if we have any sense of a Rishi Sunak manifesto so far, it is that he wants private 
investment to boost growth in this country if we don't make this country a really good looking competitive place to be. Um, and hiking corporation tax and certainly this windfall tax um, on uh, oil and gas companies is, is not the right sign. Uh, and, you know, if you were to uh, reassess corporation tax, that could probably, uh, it's certainly in the medium term, help to boost those workers as well. Uh, as businesses weren't thinking about what they might have to cut back on. Um, and, you know, it, th there's great debate about this even within the free market movement. But when George Osborne cut corporation tax, revenues did go up. Rishi Sunak's experiment in hiking corporation tax to see what would happen to that tax revenue uh, would be an interesting one, although one I'm not actually desperate to play out. I would much prefer to see the new turn now. The other thing I think they could realistically do is U-turn on this national insurance levy. Politically, that might be difficult, but they haven't had issues with U-turning on other tax on their manifesto, pledge not to raise taxes in the first place mm. on the windfall tax. So, you know, why not get up to three and make it a pattern? Um, uh, and this one would be a good one. Uh, and the reason I say that is um, because I... I think the amount of money that it's actually going to raise is now looking to be about half of what they expected. They thought that this new NI levy uh, for health and social care was going to bring in about 12 to 13 billion pounds a year. And with the changes that Rishi Sunak made to the threshold uh, in his last budget, it's realistically going to be about 6 billion a year. That is no small chunk of change. And I certainly wouldn't encourage us to just, you know, Put that on the deficit, but um, I do think that's more realistic money that they can find um, and you know make efficiencies and trim and and get that money from elsewhere. And I think that would have a, a really big impact overnight. I mean, I, as I understand it from your tax freedom day calculations, this most recent levy has played a big role in pushing the date back. Um, mm -hmm. So, and you know, people will have in April when that came in, they will have noticeably. Uh, felt that change. So, and you know, it hasn't been there for long. I think this would be the time to roll it back. Just a, a final question before we move on to the second section of this podcast. Are you someone who thinks that there is such a thing as a bad tax cut? Because I remember on the, the March um, statement, we had this uh, fuel duty cut that came in. And I found myself for one of the first times, I would say, thinking, hmm, not so much that that was a bad tax cut in itself, but that the amount of money that was spent on that tax cut could have been much better used elsewhere. I do you agree that it's important that we need to think very carefully about which specific taxes we, we need to prioritize cutting rather than just saying any tax cut is good and that's the end of it? Yes. Um, broadly speaking, I completely agree with you, Dan. Um, I want to see tax cuts that are going to benefit um, the poorest the most. I want to see tax cuts that make work pay. Uh, I do think that focus on that universal credit taper was, you know, where money should be put. Um, mm those other areas. So I completely agree with you. And then, of course, there, there are taxes that are just fundamentally more efficient and, and taxes that aren't and just distort the tax system even more. Um, your director, Eamon Butler, always makes the excellent point that, you know, the tax system, I don't know how many pounds he says it weighs now, but it's far, far, far too long. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do agree with you that you have to be smart about this, but I, I fear we're not in the privileged position yet as free marketeers to be talking about which tax cuts and the nuances we'd really like to see. Um, I really would take just about anything right now, given how bad under this conservative government. Well, here's to that. And uh, speaking of taxes that, well, actually, I'm not sure if we'll, we'll agree on this one or not. The, the next section of this podcast is going to be on the windfall tax on North Sea gas and oil. So I guess to start off, Kate, what is your, your overall take on 
the windfall tax. So you, someone who thinks that, well, in this particular case, um, it's not the end of the world because it's natural resources and actually tax competition doesn't apply as much to oil and gas, or are you more concerned about the, the knock-on effects on investment in other sectors, for example? Where do you stand on this? Well, Dan, I'm more interested in where you stand on this. You said... <laughs> Are you a fan of the windfall tax? I No, so I, I'm not a fan, but I think some of the arguments that have been put forward um, by, by free marketers in the past on windfall taxes, some certainly do make sense to me, but there are others where I think if you look at um, the determinants of, say, investment in North Sea uh, oil and gas, to me, it seems like the investment incentives or the, the tax treatment of investment is more important when you have a natural resource that you can't really move to a different tax jurisdiction to get a lower corporation tax rate, right? If BP or uh, any of the other major um, extraction companies are going to make a profit out of an investment, then they're going to make that investment regardless of the windfall tax on the profits afterwards, right? So that's where I think there's there's potentially in the past been some missteps around it. Where I think, uh, and perhaps you'll agree with me here, that the free marketers have got it absolutely right, is that it's unless it's very credibly one off and even then i think the justifications for windfall taxes are, are are wrong just in terms of how we think about the tax system even if it is credibly one off you still might have uh, knock on effects on investment decisions uh, in the wider economy so to me the fact is that it looks like it's definitely not going to be a one off or it's not going to be um, something that's specifically targeted at just one sector either. I mean, we've had talk of uh, windfall tax on other forms of electricity generation, which is going to only make investment incentives across the wider economy even worse. But yeah, I, th I think that th there is a, a strong case against it. I'm just not sure that the case that has been made in the past has always been straight on the money. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see your point. I'm very concerned about how this windfall tax was brought in. I think it was me done by uh, public polling. And I'm not convinced that's how we should be making major tax decisions and reform, um, mainly because it's very easy. And it, this goes back to a point about businesses and individuals. It's very easy to point the finger and say, oh, well, that business has a lot of money. Um, you know, why don't we just take it in these difficult times? Well, that business's money, it, it, you know, it's it's going to fund pension pots. Uh, it's going to fund our future investment in green technology. It's going to fund workers' wages, and workers' wages may be, wages may be rising. They're not rising at the pace of inflation. And you know there are a lot of things that's happening with that money that is not what's immediately assumed when you go for that kind of tax grab. And the government was making that case. I mean, this is perhaps the most worrying thing: is that you had cabinet members and you had the chancellor going out and saying, you know. If we want businesses to invest in the UK, we cannot surprise them with even one-off taxes like this when times get tough. And then it did feel like almost overnight, um, you get this windfall tax. And the windfall tax went much further and farther than even the Labour Party was calling for. Mm. The Labour Party was calling for a one-off one-year tax at around 10%. And the Conservative Party implemented at least roughly a three-year tax at 25%. I mean, this is extreme stuff. And as you point out, Dan, when we think about who else there have been calls to tax, supermarkets, for example, screaming programs, companies that did well out of the pandemic, what precedent does that set. I mean, there's the, the fundamental precedent that I completely disagree with, that the government can just come along, surprise and take your money, whether you're an individual through a wealth tax, whether you're a business uh, through a windfall tax. I, I think we have to completely reject uh, that kind of thinking because the money does not ultimately 
belong to the government. They can take it anytime it, it belongs to you. But then the next precedent that they're setting is, you know, if you perform really well throughout a global crisis, you're a target. Now, I appreciate that we're talking about natural resources here, and that does make some difference. Um, but I would like supermarkets to be incentivized to keep their their shelves full during a global pandemic. I would like Netflix to be incentivized to put better programming online when we're forced to stay inside. I don't know what the next crisis is going to be, goodness forbid, but I would like the private sector to step up as it did during COVID and made our lives significantly easier. I mean, there are talks about an Amazon tax. Could we? Could most of us have genuinely functioned um, and kept each other as safe as we did without being able to deliver things to our homes? And by the way, Amazon was reinvesting not just in the company, but in its workers. I mean, people switch from being Uber and, and Deliveroo drivers to, to being Amazon drivers because it was a much better paid gig when COVID came along. For the state to think that it can control these things or that it won't have an impact on these things when it heavily intervenes um, is such an error. I think that this is what you get when you have 12 years of a government that clearly is running out of good ideas, or if they if they have them, they certainly aren't putting them forward. They have forgotten that perhaps they won't be in charge one day. And I just have to ask myself, what would a Kiyostama or frankly, Jeremy Corbyn or anybody else do with this, this new precedent that the Conservative Party has signed up to that you can bring in a windfall tax? For me, this was actually a real breaking point because I had quite a bit of sympathy with the tax hikes that came in last year, pre the national insurance levy. Mm. I don't want to see corporation tax go up. I didn't want the personal allowance threshold frozen, but I think that the treasury understood that inflation was coming down the track and they wanted the public finances in the best shape possible to deal with that. And it's hard to look back now and say that that was wrong. Um, but these tax hikes, they feel a little more desperate. They feel like they're based on what's popular in the moment. It feels very much like number 10 was clutching at straws to figure out how it was just going to offer more giveaways. That is not a tax policy. You know, that's desperation. Um, they're not the same. And and that's been, you know, I, I feel like if there was a strategy, it's been it's been falling apart now for months. Yeah, I, I think that that point that you made there about it's not just the kind of economic knock-on effects in a sense. It's also the political ramifications later down the line when, you know, in a hypothetical world where we, we might not have a quote-unquote conservative government uh, <laughs> and actually you've established this kind of this precedent to set tax policy on the basis of moral qualms about earned versus unearned profits. And to me, that is one of the problems that I have with, with windfall taxes by definition is that they try to think about and design tax policy on the basis of fairness or moral desert rather than the kind of realistic thing that happens in the world, which is how it changes economic behavior. And the more that you have discourse around tax policy, move towards the, oh, well, you know, these people deserve to be taxed more because of X or Y, and these people don't deserve that. The more you kind of move away from actually having an efficient tax system that best promotes growth, prosperity, rising living standards, and all the things that we care about, um, as not just as free marketeers, but as general people in the world wanting to make the world a richer, better place. Well, indeed, I, I will say one thing this is not in defense of a windfall tax, but I do think that perhaps um, this, this windfall tax could be a warning to um, other. Uh, uh, private sector companies in the sense that 
I was very disappointed about how the energy bosses were responding to the idea of a windfall tax. I understand that they were under a lot of pressure, that they didn't feel like they were very popular in the public at the moment. They were being you know, demonized essentially as these big profit makers who didn't deserve it. And they were trying to do some good PR. But uh, you know, I think they really taunted politicians. You had the BP, the UK BP chief going on the radio saying, you know, we won't change our investment plans, you know, bring yeah. it on essentially. And, you know, I found this when I worked in the think tank world and I, I, I still notice it now. Um, you, you know, the people who should be making the case for smaller government, for the power of the private sector, for, you know, for the way that uh, market mechanisms improve all our lives very often don't. Um, they expect somebody else to come along and make it for them. Mm-hmm. And, and we are running out of people who are going to make those arguments. You know, we are entering quite a populist time and, and COVID, I think, ushered a lot of that along. Um, and so if you have the chief of BP saying X, Y, Z about windfall taxes, you know, and don't be surprised if you get a windfall tax. And, you know, the, the day later, you know, you've got BBC running headlines saying, oh, actually, BP will um, reassess its investment strategy. You know, no surprise there. Uh, the, the windfall taxes are a disincentive for companies who invest in the UK. Again, this isn't to justify the windfall tax, but it is just once again another reminder that you, even the most obvious people who should be making the case for liberty and free markets aren't bothering to do so. In fact, they're very often working against their own interests um, and, in my opinion, the, the knock-on interests of consumers. So I have sympathy um, for what may come from establishing this principle, but I don't have loads of sympathy for the bosses who who didn't bother to stand up for their companies. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And as I'm sure it won't surprise you, you see exactly the same phenomenon in just about every area of research that the ASI does, where you have a particular industry that is, you know, thinks that by adhering to and, and and parroting government lines on a particular issue around them getting regulated or taxed out of existence that they can somehow ward it off or they'll be able to get in the good books of the government so actually they won't do it as badly as they they might otherwise Uh, and it's just not true right It, it just doesn't work like that if anything politicians will look at that and say wow the you know, the firms in this sector are really pro this measure, I guess there's no reason for me not to do it, right? It's a, a fundamentally flawed you know, PR and business strategy, I think, in, in just about every single case. But moving on to uh, the final topic for discussion on today's podcast, which is the future of the Conservative Party in terms of what the economic direction looks like, what potential new leadership might look like. Um, we can have a chat about what the vote of no confidence, I think, says about uh, Boris's chances of surviving for the next few years and up until the next election. Uh, were you surprised by the, the level of opposition in the end for the, the vote of no confidence? There's 148, I believe, voted against him in the end. That was higher than I think I expected. Um, did you have a figure in mind beforehand? I did. I actually, I think I was asked to write it down at one point. Mm. Um, very good practice to do that, yeah. It was higher than I thought, perhaps not by much. I think I thought it was going to be about 135. Mm. Although as the day went on, it did, it did. at one point I was like, oh, I should have gone for, you know, 190. That wasn't right either. Um, <laughs> Admirable um, self-reflection there. I did not write mine down and uh, you got you got to have costly signaling. I thought it was going to be about 135. Um, you know, I, it, it's bad. It's bad for the prime minister. Um 
it's going to be very difficult to stand up and, you know, make proclamations about your party and your vision, knowing that roughly 40% of your own MPs don't want you there. I will not say that Boris can't survive it. Uh, Boris has a remarkable ability to survive just about anything, but it doesn't feel over. Uh, we have by-elections coming up, um, which the Tories are are not looking like they may win. We have a increasingly angry uh, group of, of backbencher MPs who are, you know, now even making clear to the Prime Minister's face when he went to speak to MPs before the vote that they simply cannot defend the indefensible. And they're struggling to go out there and say what the Tory party stands for and certainly what Boris Johnson stands for. So, you know, it's going to be difficult. Now, People are asking, does this just mean he'll, he'll cater to the base, which might mean that he caters to more free market ideas? Well, again, as I started out saying, he's always been good at talking about it. The question is, you know, is he willing to actually make tough decisions? And this is where Boris Johnson struggles. Um, he, he really doesn't want to have to play the bad guy. And he's terrified of the austerity label. Absolutely terrified of it. He told the Spectator's politics team, uh, James Forsyth and Katie Balls, in an interview back in 2019, um, that he wanted to ditch austerity, that in retrospect, he thought it was wrong, that Cam the Cameron Osborne vision of, of cutting the state as they did wasn't right. And he's terrified to be labeled with that again. Um, and I, 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 with the economic forecasts as bleak as they are, the OECD today uh, uh, showing forecasts that the UK may have the worst economic growth next year out of all the developed countries. And um, things can't things can't stay this way. I mean, we're not in a sustainable situation. But under Boris Johnson, I don't exactly see how this budges unless he can convince his chancellor and his cabinet that they really can just borrow lots of money and cut taxes and spend more and make everybody feel good for another year or two. But I think you now have enough people, the chancellor included, who, who feel that that's just an irresponsible thing to do. Um, that is just delaying some really big decisions that have to be made post-COVID. I wonder whether the, the politically realistic way out of this kind of bind that you don't want to go down any sort of spending cut route, but you also want to keep spending beyond your means, but you also want tax cuts, etc. Whether that makes the future direction of the Conservatives go more towards tackling regulation, things that aren't directly fiscally related. Um, so, you know, housing is obviously a classic example, but there's plenty of others, childcare, um, something that talked about a lot, the ASI and that you've talked about a lot yourself um, and the kind of regulations around that. Is that potentially the way in where we can make a difference to the bottom line without needing to really address these these constraints as much? Um, I suspect, Dan, that if you had a new Tory leader, um, that tackling supply side may well be the path they go down. Um, I'm very sad to say that this is a United Kingdom that, regardless of the party you're looking at, simply does not seem interested in reducing the overall um, mm. tax burden. I mean, or at least the the, the share of the size of the state. I, I, I the, Nobody's desperate for a smaller state, or if they are, they're not saying it out loud. And they might, you know, talk about it a little bit, especially at a party conference, but nobody's putting forward meaningful proposals to actually trim down the size of the state. So as you say, if you're the Tory party, you know, what are you going to do to differentiate yourself at that point from the Labour Party? And the answer might be deregulation across the board. But in order to 
to really tackle something like the planning system, especially from the Tory side of things, where you have a lot of MPs in very NIMBY seats, not in my backyard. Uh, I'm sure every ASI listener knows that term, but just in case, uh, you're going to have to use basically all of your political capital to do so. You know, if Boris Johnson on his first day coming in after that big 2019 win with an 80 seat majority had said, I know this is going to be difficult for a lot of my MPs, but we're going to do planning reform. I think he could have done it. He would have spent a lot of political capital, but it would have been the right thing to do and on a really good project. There is no political capital left to spend. Boris Johnson is not in a position to upset one of his MPs. All he's in a position to do um, is 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 offer them what they want and giveaways and all the rest of it. Um, so, or at least try to act as if he's going to deliver on on, on their wants and needs. Um, so, I I just don't see any scenario where planning reform can happen under this prime minister now. It would take such leadership and such sacrifice on the part of MPs, and and there is no love there right now. There's no way to do that. But but perhaps optimistically, maybe in the future, whether that be through a leadership election or one day losing a general election and coming back with a different prime minister one day, you know, maybe there will be scope to do it. Um, just to, to kind of finish up, speaking again of the, the vote of no confidence and the kind of the runners and riders side of things, do you see any viable alternative to Johnson for leadership of the Conservatives? Because there's a lot of people out there writing saying they don't see a viable alternative. I mean, you know, you've, you've got uh, Jeremy Hunt, you've got Liz Truss, Tom Tugendhat being talked about, Penny Morden, uh, but are any of them liked enough to, to actually take over and, and be able to lead them to a general election victory? Or is there some truth to the, well, Boris is the only one that can lead us to victory, so we just have to suck it up narrative? Um, I actually see quite a few viable alternatives. Mm. Um, I'm I'm going to be careful to, to not name them as I don't want to seem too biased. But I of course I, I, I think that I do think that there are are viable alternatives. Um, and actually, if, if we're going to broaden it out, whether I agree with them politically or not, or you know I think they're you know right on tax or right on planning or, or, or wrong on it and the rest of it, I just think there there are a lot of people with vision in the Tory party right now. Yeah. What I think is making the MPs nervous is that it is now still too up in the air to say which one they're going to get. I think you've got a lot of MPs who think, well, I would prefer this person over Boris Johnson, but I would prefer Boris Johnson over this other person any day and twice on Sunday. And that, you know, if you are going to dispose of your leader, you want to be pretty confident who you as MPs and then the membership are going to bring in next. And so I don't think it's that there aren't viable alternatives to the prime minister is that within the Tory party, I don't think there's any clue at the moment as to which way it would go. It's really, it's not an obvious front runner at the moment. And as long as there isn't an obvious front runner, I think a lot of people just don't feel it's the right time. They're a bit too nervous to make a move because they could end up with their chosen guy or gal, but they could also end up with what they perceive to be a far worse option. Um, And if we do think about, you know, the Brexit debate and all the rest of it, I think when Boris spoke to MPs a few hours before the confidence vote, it was very clear what he was emphasizing. He was emphasizing, um, you know, this will be good for Labour and the SNP. And he was saying this will be good for Remainers. You know, what if you get somebody who wants to solve the Northern Ireland protocol situation by 
being closer to the EU. Um, regardless of what you think of that, listeners, you know, that's what MPs are, are weighing up. And I think it may have swayed a few of them, at least, or enough of them, that they're not confident enough with who they'll get next to actually actually decide to go through with it. Yeah, I, th- I think that really speaks to something that has been overlooked over the course of uh, the Brexit debate and then beyond, which is that factionalism is still very much a key part of the Conservative Party, right? It might be that through let's get Brexit done and then level up, you can paper over the cracks, uh, leveling up probably less successful at doing that, given that it took so long to define even a modicum of what that concept meant. Uh, But now that it has come down to people seriously considering, okay, if not Boris, then who? The fact is that different factions are going to be in different camps and they are not able to risk the idea of someone from the opposite camp taking the reins. So they're going to, by sins of omission, keep Boris going as at least he's not X or Y person. I think that's why the Theresa May comparisons are interesting. Um, I mean, as a as a percentage, Boris Johnson has done worse than Theresa May. Um, I think it was roughly 36, 37% of MPs that voted against her and Boris crossed the 40% threshold. But it is different in the sense that, you know, Theresa May was dealing with a fundamentally gridlocked parliament and party that was fighting over one issue. The Tory party is not happy with the different, you know, as you say, lots of different factions. They're not necessarily happy with each other right now. But I wouldn't say that any of the decisions that are going through, even say the national insurance rise or the windfall tax, are as upsetting to Tory MPs as the Brexit debates were. Now, if someone were proposing to go back into lockdown, or if you had another round of the COVID debates, I could see it reaching that level. But Boris might be able to go on for a bit longer. And I, I'm, I'm not making a prediction, as I said, who knows when it comes to Boris. But, you know, people are saying, well, Mrs. May had to leave just months after her no confidence vote, even though she won it. And Boris may well have to as well. But given the fact that the the tension and debates are not of the same level in the mo- at the moment in the party as they were during Brexit, it might give him scope to stay on longer. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised anyway if he were making the prime minister's speech at party conference in October. Well, let's hope that if he does, he embraces that tax cutting agenda that we were talking about earlier on in the podcast. Uh, I think it's time to bring this episode to an end. I've been Daniel Pryor, the head of research at the Adam Smith Institute and joined by the wonderful Kate Andrews, the economics editor at The Spectator. If you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. And we will see you next week. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Kate.